All right, this is a reading from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 12. Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church to do them harm. And he had James, the brother of John, executed with a sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter as well. Now these were the days of the unleavened bread. When he had arrested him, he put him in prison, turning him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him intending only after the Passover to bring him before the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made to God intensely by the church. On the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly stood near Peter, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter's side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Put on your belt and strap on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And when he went out and continued to follow, and yet he did not know that he was that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. Now when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from the hand of the Jewish people from, and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. When he knocked at the door of the gate, a slave woman named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting it was so. They said, it's his angel, but... Peter continued knocking, and when they had opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to him, them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison, and he said, Report these things to James and the brothers. Then he left and went to another place. Now, when day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter. When Herod had searched for him and had not found him, he examined the guards and ordered that they be led away to execution. 
Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. Now he was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and with one mind they came to him. And having won over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they were asking for peace because their country was supported with grain from the king's country. On an appointed day, after putting on his royal apparel, Herod took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. The people repeatedly cried out, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned when they had fulfilled their mission to Jerusalem, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we start. Uh, Father, we come here to receive grace by the preaching of your word. We come to receive insight through your word. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us through uh, this account in Acts of how we would be a Christian community that, that lifts you up, that glorifies you, and honors you. Conform us to the image of your Son through Jesus Christ. Fill us with your Holy Spirit and empower us this morning. Amen. So we're continuing in Acts. We're uh, not halfway through yet, but we're, we're getting there. And so reminding everybody that the theme of Acts uh, starts in, in Matthew 16, where Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And if we were going to take one scripture, one verse of Acts, and kind of use that as the locus classicus to say we're going to interpret the entire book of Acts through this one verse, it's going to be Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria until the end of the earth. And so Jesus is building his church. The gates of hell are not prevailing against it. And we have the same mission to be filled with the Holy Spirit and be witnesses of the risen Lord to the ends of the earth. And that's what we're doing this morning. And uh, so one thing that would help in reading one chapter at a time uh, and preaching on it from the pulpit one week at a time would be going back and getting yourself familiar with the overarching storyline and reading uh, the book of Acts every week or, or the subsequent chapters every week to be familiar with it. And I hope everyone's paying attention during the, uh, we try to do the chapter during the scripture reading, so at least you can, we don't have to sit here and read the chapter and then talk about it and then read some more and, and talk about it, and it's a, it's a time saver. And so if it hasn't been explicitly said that Jesus' kingdom is coming through the church, the church is not a political movement, uh, the church is, is not established to make a political movement. Um, when our theme verse from Acts 1.8, when, when Jesus is essentially asking the question, the disciples are wondering, when, when are you, you going to come and when are you going to dispose the Romans and when are you going to throw out the Caesars and this Herodian dynasty and when are you going to put yourself on the throne? When are you going to do that? And Jesus is like, um, that's a weird question. Uh, and he doesn't even say, no, that's not, that's not what's going to happen. Uh, this isn't a, a revolutionary type of 
of movement that, that we have. And he and said, just says, you're going to make disciples of all nations through the power of the Holy Spirit and being Christ's witnesses. And so when, when Christ is raised, uh, he already has all authority. And so the kingdom, the kingdom of God comes when you realize and submit to that authority. Jesus is already, in when we're reading the book of Acts, uh, and we see Herod Agrippa here, Jesus has already have dominion and lordship over Agrippa and over the Herodian dynasty. He already has it. They just haven't realized it yet. And it doesn't end well for Herod in this chapter. Um, and so it's the, what the Christians are building through Jesus' mandate to build his church and to be his witnesses and to influence and take dominion of the entire world. And so they knew the slow growth of the kingdom would be worked into the entire world through Christian community. And so it's easy when you read like the book of Acts or any historic narrative through scripture to focus on the, the majority of the, of the text in this chapter just talks about this miraculous miracle for Peter. But what I want to look at is what is, in, what is going on in the Christian community behind that and why is God blessed to do that? And so it really wouldn't be a good idea to read uh, Acts chapter 12 and say, I have to imitate Peter and get thrown. My main goal is to get thrown into prison and uh, hopefully an angel will come and save me. That's not, the, that's not the takeaway that we should be getting from this chapter. What we want to look at is in the beginning and the end, it is coupled by a, a group of Christians, the community praying for Peter. And so there's this little, what you want to do when you're reading is not just focus on the miraculous events that happened. Those are wonderful. God puts them in there for a reason. But start paying attention to what is surrounding that, that God is pleased to move in that way. And so Matthew, uh, the Christians knew about the slow growth of the, of the kingdom that is coming through the church. Um, and they knew from Matthew 13, Jesus uh, uh, relates the kingdom of God and the slow growth and the working through the whole world of uh, that is leaven that's being worked into flour. And so it's the slow growth of the kingdom that's being worked into the entire world where Jesus is his authority in every nation, in every political movement, in every economy, in, in every land is going to slowly be worked into the entire earth. And so we're never permitted in scripture to divorce the parables of the kingdom from Christ's Christ claim to total authority. And so when Jesus says, I have total authority, and he says, then the kingdom will be worked into the entire world, it doesn't mean, well, I, I have this total authority when people submit or when my authority is realized. He already has the authority. They just haven't realized it yet. And so you see that in, in various epistles, like in, in relation to the family. Jesus has authority over your family. It's whether you've realized that and submitted to that in, in the way that uh, that you're mandated. Same thing with your, Jesus has authority over your life. He is the Lord. He is not just my Lord. Uh, he is the Lord, and then you realize that he is my Lord. And so uh, the only way for that, to not have a divorce of Jesus' claims to total authority in the kingdom uh, being worked into the total earth is the only way for that really to stick is through Christian community. It can't happen on an individualistic realm. It can't happen really any other way except through Christian community. And so where there are Christians in any given area that have submitted and are obedient to Jesus Christ, you should expect the economy to change, politics to change, and education and, and so many uh, things to change. 
and become under the lordship of Christ. Uh, when Greg was speaking yesterday, we talked about the seven inevitable institutions of every society with the base of the, the self and the family, then the church, and it's a pyramid, so it's getting smaller, so there's less authority. Uh, then the education and business, the economy, the social mores or media, and then at the top is civic government, and it's that small little part on the pyramid that has the least amount of uh, authority and influence in a, in a culture. And so the only way you would expect as Christian communities to build that it would gain influence in the surrounding economy, the surrounding culture, and that's not primarily just because there's more of them. Right? It's, we don't believe that just when there's more, that the only way that Christians can influence a society is just to become more and not influence the culture and not influence the economy and not influence the ideas of, of marriage or, or, or sexual morality or, or anything. And so it's not primarily because there's more Christians in a society that is true, that is an influence, but because we have the truth and the truth stands on itself. And so on a basic economic level, I like thinking about this. If you have good, honest money and you put that against bad, dishonest money, the good, honest money is always going to win because that's what's going to make everybody more profitable and, and uh, people want money, <laughs> profits. And so that one, will, that one will outlast all the dishonest money. And so I was at a wedding yesterday and uh, of, a, of one of Noel's friends, and if you notice in, in most American weddings that everyone's seated, you get to see the, the groom walks in, and everyone's like, is that the groom? I, I didn't even know the guy, and I had to ask, is that the, is that the groom? And like, yeah, that's the groom. And I'm like, okay, cool, get him. He looks like the other six guys standing there because they're in the same suit, and it's really hard to distinguish which one's which, except for he's first in line, and... Um, and you get the honor of the parents coming down. And then when the bride walks through, what does everybody do? Everybody stands up. Why? Because we honor the woman who has prepared herself. And there's not a whole lot of other cultures that honor women like that outside of a Christian context. Um, especially in marriage. That's because Christianity and how Christians uphold women has influenced our culture so much, which is why nominal um, nominal Christians or or just people in our culture have that custom and they might not know the deeper meaning behind it or anything but they but they do it because they honor women because Christians have had an influence on raising up the glory and honor of women in our society and so that's what we are are we want to keep always in our mind when we're going through that, these parables of the kingdom coming and it's going to be worked into the entire earth and Jesus says you're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit and you're going to be my witnesses and that means cultural change. And we see that here in Acts chapter 12. And so to handle a couple of just timeline and um, literary or historic things. And so we're looking in Acts chapter 12. We're about 11 years after the, the death of Stephen, after Stephen's stoning. And so you might be a little confused when you read this, and I am always like more than a little confused when I'm reading through scripture about like who's who and what's what. And so there's two James in this chapter, and you're like, James died, and you're like, which James is that? And then he asked for James, and it's like, does, did Peter get disappointed because then he found out James died? Or which James is it? Which John is it? Which Mary is it? And so, 
Uh, James gets executed, um, right? This would be James the Greater. This would be the older James, one of the 12 disciples. Uh, this James was one of the three closest apostles to Christ. Within James, or I'm sorry, Christ had uh, three people, James and John, who were brothers, the sons of thunder, and then Peter, who were the three closest to Christ, who saw him on the Mount of Transfiguration, who were with him when uh, Jairus' daughter was raised. And those three seemed to get more instruction in time. And then the 12 got... Uh, more than the general population. And so this James that died is not the writer of the epistle of James. Um, He is the one that which, uh, as he was a a son of thunder, that his mother asked Jesus if James and John can sit at Jesus' right hand in the kingdom. And Jesus replies that, woman, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the same cup that I'm about to drink, which is a cup of suffering? And, And Christ's response to his own question was that, that you will drink this cup, and this is how James drank the cup of suffering. And so, in what we often uh, maybe miss in this little section of the chapter is that Christian communities, they're starting to get noticed by the state, by the government, and they're, they're wildly opposed to having a, another lord. And so this particular state, if you know anything about the Herodian dynasty or the, the Roman colonies in the first century, and this particular state was uh, part of the Herodian dynasty or the family of Herods. Uh, there was a nepo- nepotism that was in line of rulers over, over Israel, Judea. And so this, it gets a little confusing also because you're like, Herod, which Herod is it? It says Herod. And they expect you to know what time it is, what year it is. And that was a lot easier for Christians, you know, a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago, because they were pretty close. But we just read it and uh, we're like... Herod, Herod, Herod? Is this the same Herod? It's not. And so this is Herod Agrippa I. He is the grandson of Herod the Great, who would have been the first Herod in the Herodian dynasty that killed the the babies in Bethlehem when Jesus fled uh, to Bethlehem. I'm sorry, when there was a census in Bethlehem and fled uh, uh, Jesus, his family fled to Egypt. Uh, That was Herod the Great. Um, Herod the Great took control over, over Israel, uh, Judea, um, in 37 BC by the help of the Roman armies. Uh, he was a very good totalitarian uh, ruler, and so one of the first things he did was, as any totalitarian, totalitarian government would do, he takes control by force, and then he starts dishing out money and incentives to, uh, to neuter the people. And so he started construction of, of the uh, the temple, which would, would have been called um, Herod's Temple in that time, which was the, the second temple of Israel. Sometimes they would say that's the third temple because there were so many uh, uh, remodel, remodels and stuff done. And so Herod the Great ruled up until, um, uh, for a time period, and then after he died, Herod Antipas ruled after that, and that was the Herod that killed John the Baptist. So again, uh, you see a lot of Herods who take control, totalitarians, kill the people, do it by force, and then uh, uh, to gain people's approval. And so after that, then we have Herod uh, Agrippa I, who is the Herod we're talking about, who ruled from 41 AD to, to 44 AD. And, and so the totalitarian, totalitarian rulers never really like obedient Christians because it always produces cultures opposed to their rule. And, and so 
if you don't understand that we live in a totalitarian state, you're like, wait a minute, we've got all these freedoms. And uh, if you would look at the, uh, I'd, my first question would be like, well, what's your standard? And so if you use a biblical standard of what the government is, is for, the g- government was instituted by God to be ministers of justice and only justice. Uh, and so if you look at the power grab over just in our nation over the last 150, 200 years or uh, a little bit more, uh, you can look at uh, just the amount of taxes. I often like to listen to uh, progressive liberal radio called NPR just to see what the other side is like. And they sometimes have good, good programs on. And uh, the, the average American is taxed at about 45%. That's the middle class uh, with not just income taxes and sales taxes. And, and so there's, there's that, um, but the government far reaches into education, welfare, foreign aid, the war machine, and, and so on. Those are not things ordained by God for the government to do. And so in here, it, you have to note that how are the Christians fighting it? They're not producing a revolution. What do we see the Christians doing? They're praying. They're preaching the gospel. They're doing good works. And so it's never called for the Christians to form a revolution. And so if you look at, uh, this should be in your outline at some point, but First Timothy 2, 1 through 2, uh, Paul writes to Timothy and says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, or all kinds of people, uh, for kings and all who are in high positions, that they may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. We, are to, we can't pray for peace and then throw a Molotov cocktail at our enemies. That's not peace. That's not how, uh, we're, not, we're not Muslims. And we don't believe peace by force. We, we believe peace by discipleship, peace by influence. And so the, what that means is that Christians, that, that, that doesn't mean that they back down when the fight comes to them. It doesn't mean that we have to change our way of thinking or, or uh, well, you want to tax me heavily, so I guess I'll just let you tax me heavily. And to keep peace, uh, there's God-ordained ways to, uh, to, to push back. But that doesn't mean we go looking for the fight. It usually means that the fight comes to us if we're obedient Christians. And so that doesn't mean that John the Baptist was, wasn't doing this. John the Baptist uh, went to Herod and told him that what he was doing was uh, adulterous by marrying his brother's sister. And that doesn't mean that he was, wasn't trying to leave, live a peaceful and quiet life. He, I generally think that <laughs> he understood the gospel enough as John the Baptist uh, that you, you wouldn't say that John the Baptist was in the wrong for doing that, or that, that now somehow we're going to... We saw John the Baptist get beheaded because he was confronting a government authority who was committing adultery, and that didn't go well for John, so now we're going to pray to live a peaceful and quiet life. I really, I really do, and we should pray for, for politicians and, and government officials, and I would pray that they live a moral life so that we can live a peaceful and quiet life so that we don't have to tell them how much they're committing adultery and stealing and killing. I would really like that, but um, that's how we would pray for them. And so autocrats aren't content with the rule that they have um, and always want more. That's what a totalitarian state is. That's what a totalitarian is. An autocrat, they all, it's a power grab. They always want more. And that's what we're seeing in the Herodian dynasty. And so, um, you know, as we see that and, and think about how would... would, would 
Would we build Christian community that fights what we're facing today? And so currently our own government is beginning to tell us what we can and cannot say from the pulpit. Um, There's been churches that have been fined for just speaking biblical truth against homosexuality. And, and so the government encroachments uh, are just coming in from all sides, and especially in the past couple of years, we see that increasing. And so all that to be said, the Christian communities are defined by prayer. They're defined by people covenanting, communing together, praying with one another, praying for one another. And so they had probably prayed for Peter's safety. I would, I would believe that they did and prayed for his release. And then when it happened, they were like, they didn't even believe it. They were like, oh, God's answering this one, I guess. Uh, they'd probably, I don't know how long Peter was in prison um, or if it gives us a clue of whether it's a couple days or, or how long. But um, that's how these Christian communities are defined by prayer for one another. If you were to just do a search of prayer in the New Testament, I think out of the 27 books, or pray, or something like that, uh, explicitly, it's, it's said uh, out of, I think, 23 out of the 27. And almost every epistle starts with how, how the apostle or the writer is praying for them or, and asking for prayer. And so this should be a huge staple. This is, should be how we are defined. And so somehow in God's omniscience, he desired, uh, his desires was so that prayer would be the staples of how Christians change the world. And so I don't doubt that they were all, it's not that, it says that they were praying for Peter, but it didn't say that they were praying for James, and so James got executed, but we're not the prosperity gospel, and if we pray for the right people, they'll get delivered. And that's also a bad mode because there could be people that you don't pray for because you want what's coming to them. Uh, I don't think that's what, what was going on. And so uh, we're going to look at some scripture verses about the mandate to pray fervently and how it would be a regular discipline of the Christian life. And I would say that uh, even going off of that to say that that is how Christian communities are defined. That's how we covenant and take care of one another. That's how, uh, that's in, and that's how we end up changing the world. That's one of the modes. And so we have to remember that if we get away from prayer, we're living essentially as, the, as what an Arminian would be, whether you believe that God is sovereign or, or you got a lot of free will. And, um, and we, if you get away from prayer, you are practically living a, a, a works-based salvation that you think you can pull yourself from the bootstraps, you can get enough wisdom, you can get enough guidance, and you can do it if, you're, if you get away from prayer. And so prayer is reliance on God. And so some of those, uh, the verses we'll look at, 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 11. Very pertinent to uh, our, our uh, Acts chapter 12. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely on our, not on, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessings granted us through the prayers of many. And so. We think that there's something scripturally in prayer 
that says that like corporate prayer is a catalyst to visitation, that God's spirit moves on a people who are praying fervently together. And Paul says, you must also help us by prayer. And so when we look at, especially in Acts chapter 12, and take a step back to look at the community, what's the community doing? The community is praying, the community is doing tons of other things like giving and and service, but they are a community based on prayer. And then you see like the apostle Peter, miraculous things happen and, and God works through him. But that's, I would say that you can't get that away from a community of people who are praying. Ephesians 6, 18 and 19. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep, to, keep alert with all perseverance. Making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. And so... We should be making supplications, prayers. We should be praying for every single person at Grace Christian Fellowship. We should be setting apart regular time to think about like, okay, who's, who's in the church? And list some names and, okay, we're going to pray for them. I don't know how to pray for everybody, but God understands. And so I'm not worried about that. I'm not worried about saying the magic words like Vini, Vini, Vici, and, and, and then God delivers and releases the floodgates because we said the magic words. That's not how it works. God knows. He even tells us, our Lord tells us, to keep our public prayers short. <laughs> and even the Lord's prayer is a model of like, hey, here's six things. Just like, it's like four sentences. Here's six things to pray for. And, and so, because God knows. He's omniscient. He's He's sovereign. And so we should be making supplications. We should be praying for every person in our community. That doesn't mean we have to know how to pray for them, but I can guarantee you if they're a husband, I can pray that they'd lead their wife well, that they'd be in good relationship with their wife. And I don't even know how their marriage is, and, and nor does that always concern me, but they need prayer. Uh, same thing for the wife, and same thing for the children, and same thing for the leaders, and same thing for the people at Rock Campus Fellowship, and same thing for the people in discipleship groups, and same thing. And you can, we wouldn't have enough time in the day if we actually sat down and thought about all the people in our community and what we could pray for. We would not have enough time in one day. And so, uh, Maybe you should have family worship and pray as a family together. Maybe you should set apart time uh, before you go to work or some kind of formal or some kind of organized Christian discipline that would make sure you're being obedient to what the Lord is calling us to do, which is praying for one another. And so for some reason in, in God's omniscience and in his sovereignty, this is how he changes the world. And it's, it's juxtaposed to political movements here in Scripture. In this very chapter, you've got the Herodian dynasty who's up and down and, and doing things and controlling governments and people in various ways. And what happens? And what is, how does God change the world? By some people praying off quietly over here that nobody sees or hardly anybody knows about and doesn't seem very glorious. And so our faith is not that in some revolutionary sense, that we're going to change the world by political activism or by any real kind of activism. We will change it by making disciples. And part of that is, is fervent prayer, praying for the saints, praying that as you guys go to work, as we all go to work, that we would be faithful Christians, that we would act like Christians, Amen. that we'd be filled with the Holy Spirit, that we'd be witnesses as, to Jesus as we go to school. We'd be witnesses to Jesus by obeying his laws as we go to work as we uh, disciple our families, as we relate to our spouses or, or other people in our household. Uh, 
That's how we can make supplications for the saints. That's how we can change the world. Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, giving thanks, um, sorry, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Don't be anxious, pray about it. Colossians 4, 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with all thanksgiving. Uh, various Christians have made models over the years about like, how do you pray? And I'm, I like those kind of things sometimes because it's like it helps you, like an acronym, acronym helps you remember, and a lot of them start with thanksgiving and praise. But you got the Lord's Prayer. You don't need an acronym if you don't need it. Just go to Matthew chapter 6, and you got the Lord's Prayer. And it starts with thanksgiving, glorifying God, uh, praying his will. Everyone should know First Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Did you feel like stopping? Just keep going. Pray at work. Quietly while you work. First Thessalonians, a couple of verses down, verses 25, brothers, pray for us, right? Paul's pleading, pray for us, especially those who are doing the ministry or who have a more public ministry or in charge of something, pray for them. First Timothy 2, 1 through 2, first of all then, what we talked about earlier, about supplications and prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving being made for all people, all types of people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life godly and dignified in every way. Pray that we could live a peaceful life. I hope that we do, right? I hope that we change cultures, swing economics, swing education uh, in a peaceful way. I pray that when, um, when, you know, there was a situation just in Grace Christian Fellowship where when we had Kids Rock at the old government school where the principal is... Uh, a lesbian woman who isn't too friendly with Christians. I pray that we would, that, and we did it this way, that we could live a peaceful life to come in and teach the kids and disciple them. And we did, right? It was peaceful in, in the midst of where there could have easily been opposition. And so what happened to Herod? What happened to Herod um, Antipas? Oh, I'm sorry, this is Herod Agrippa I. So what, so what really happened to him? This is, we get the record in Scripture and most secular historians would just throw any biblical account out the window because it's the Bible and they don't like that. And so what really happened to him? So uh, Josephus, which was a Jewish historian in the first century, which recorded, uh, he had his records called the Jewish Wars, which recorded the years coming up to the uh, Roman army disposing and, and totally tearing down Jerusalem. And so he records that that Herod, this Herod went to a festival and he put on his, his, he essentially had a silver garment that shone in the sun and, and you can see and even in the scriptures it says that he put on his festal garments. And so he had some silver type garment that shone in the sun and this is how pagans work. Here's a guy who is uh, by all means closer to God than us because he's in the government and who sees this this vest or this garment shining in the sun and it shines on the people. And they're like, this is a God and not a man. And Josephus records that they start shouting things, just as recorded in scripture, that this man is above mortals. He is, he is higher than the mortals. And so uh, Herod had a, some type of prophecy, I don't know from who, but that the first omen he saw uh, earlier in life was an owl perched above his head and that was a good sign and he got some kind of omen predicted to him that if he saw another owl perched above his head that would be a bad omen and he would die and Josephus records that's what happened he saw at this festival 
an owl perched above his head. He freaks out, and he starts having uh, heart and stomach pains. And so he leaves immediately from this festival, and he continues for five days with severe belly pain and dies. And he died in 44 AD. And so it's uh, almost just as the scriptures record, because he was struck down in this feast, in this festival, where the people were proclaiming that he was a god and not a man, and he gets struck with ailment, uh, the scriptures say, by a, an angel, and he dies five days later. And so in that, what are, what are, what's going on? Um, the, what's being juxtaposed is the next verse after that, after the account of Herod is, but the word of God increased and multiplied. The word is continuing to increase and multiply. The Herodian dynasty is, if you like, uh, if you like spicy novels, uh, just go read history of the, the Roman Empire. That's more, that's wilder than any novel you can think of. And so Daniel 2 taught, says he, that God removes kings and establishes kings. Romans 13, for there is no authority except from God, that those that exist have been instituted by God. And even our own Lord in John 19 says, uh, when he's answering, answering Pontius Pilate, told him that he wouldn't have any authority over Jesus unless it had been given to him from above. And so where's the Herodian dynasty now? It's in the dirt. It's gone, right? Where's the kingdom of God now? It's still growing. It's still filling the earth. So we have to think about playing the long game. God establishes rulers. He brings them up and he brings them down as he wills, right? And, but the kingdom of God is going to continue to increase. One of the first verses I think we'll read in Advent is, is Isaiah 9 that we quote, essentially quote in the Nicene Creed that his kingdom will continue to increase always from his birth. And so that's what, we're, that's what we're looking at here in Acts chapter 12 is that there are these government agencies, there are the, there's these totalitarians, there's these, these kings, these emperors, these presidents that God raises up and he brings them down as he wills. And he does it when he wants and how he wants. He surely uses his people in, in nonviolent revolts, but he, the word of God continues to multiply and increase as the people are faithful to do, to be witnesses of Christ. And so our call to the table today is from Psalm 23 and Psalm 2. And so in Psalm 23, 5, um, the psalmist says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And this table isn't a, a, little, a little table uh, when you're reading the psalm to think of, and it's it's like sitting, you guys ever sit at the card table, like there's a little folding card table, the kids' table at Thanksgiving dinner, and it's like, this is where off, that's like, kids are probably thinking, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, like in the midst of all the parents. And, and it's just this like little thing and this little feast, and you can't have dessert until you finish all your food. And that's not the table I don't think the Lord is, or that the scriptures are alluding to. This table is a table of feasting. This is where we start. This is where we feast and dine in the presence of our enemies. And so uh, we're going to read Psalm 2, 1 through 8. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together 
against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, on my holy hill. But I will tell the decree, The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. Right? The Lord had asked, our Lord Jesus has asked the Father, and he is giving him the ends of the earth. As Catherine spoke this morning about um, the manifest destiny or the American exceptionalism, we reject the idea that America is some special agency by God to bring about discipleship to the nations. Right? We reject that idea because it's only through the lordship of Christ. Surely the American government has to submit to the lordship of Christ, but just like any other nation has to. And those nations who, who have Deuteronomic blessings that have laws and governments that obey Christ will get blessed as we have uh, by, by the Lord himself. And so we come to a table of feasting in the presence of enemies, but that's where we start. That's where the Lord calls us to begin, to start our work week with receiving grace, feasting, worshiping, praising, communing with one another, communing with God, and then we go out and fight. Then we go out. We don't go out and then come in. We do come in. But this is where we start. And so it starts as a feast. It starts as, as communing with Christ, and then we go out uh, to to do as the Lord said, to take the ends of the earth. So, so come on up, let's dine with Christ.